I feel like I was too quick. I kind of shut down the time. Sorry. Didn't give you a chance to visit. Hey, I, I don't often do this uh, because they don't like attention pointed at them. But you need to know, up until about five minutes before we started our early service day, we had no sound in the sanctuary. So like the ability to amplify an instrument or a voice or anything, something went haywire. And I just want to say to our team back there, our tech crew and our worship crew, would you thank them with me? Because they just went above and beyond. Yeah, just to make it possible. We were kind of scrambling and we said, let's stop and pray. And then their expertise, the Lord supernaturally infused that with even more expertise and they, they knocked it out of the park. So I'm just thankful for them. And two, I'll say this, if you're considering Alpha, Ian just mentioned Alpha, he didn't know I was gonna follow up on this at all. I would just say as a church, we, we really do love being a place for skeptics. I mean, people who are skeptical of the claims of Christ, but are saying, I wanna explore that and figure that out and ask really good, hard, honest questions. No out of bounds questions here. We, here we just recognize that everybody is trying to figure this thing called life out. And we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe he presents answers to the hardest questions that make sense. They're logical and, and they are life-giving. And so we just would encourage you uh, as this place, we, we are finding in this day and age that more and more folks are joining us who are in that place of being skeptical. And we love that. So we hope that you will uh, join us on the journey and just know that you'll, your skepticism and your questions are just always welcome here. So glad you're here. So let's do this. I'll share a few statistics with you from the Barna Group. You guys heard of the Barna Group? They do a lot of research on the church and faith and culture. Here's a couple of relatively unsettling statistics. And these are from the book Good Faith by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, which I would recommend to you as a good read. According to the Barna Group, one-third, one-third, that's 33% of college-age adults say at this point they want nothing to do with religion. And 59% of young adults drop out of church at some point in their 20s. Now, if you follow demographics or, you know, been in church long, those are probably not incredibly shocking statistics. I'll share a few more with you. When asked the question, you know, the problems with our country, when you think about the problems of our country, do you think that people of faith and religion in general are helping or hurting when it comes to those things. And 42% of people say that faith is actually not part of the solution to the problems we face, but part of the problem. 46% say that religion in general is part of the problem. And just to kind of make sure we round it out, one in five, that's 20% of people, say that clergy, that would be me, uh, don't believe that any preacher, pastor, clergy has anything to offer that's trustworthy or represents wisdom in any way. So... One in five of you guys are in and the other ones are out. Or no, four out of five. I said it backwards. Good. So four out of five of you are in and the, and, and the one out of five, you can just hopefully just endure. Just endure. So those are some things that are probably important for us to know. Now here's, what I, here's why I share those statistics with you. Because people are walking away from the church and they're walking away from Jesus. Now those two things don't always go hand in hand. You know that, right? Some people walk away from the church but not from Jesus himself. Now, I would argue that ultimately to thrive in Jesus, you need to be a part of a church, and we can talk more about that. But here's what I'll say. 
we recognize that that's the case and it's happening in large numbers in our culture and day and age. So something that is helpful to remember though when we confront those statistics is that it has been the case that in every generation of the church from its very inception, from its very founding, this has always been a concern for the church, people walking away from faith in Jesus. It's been the case for Paul as we're about to see as we look into 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and it's been the case in every generation succeeding from him all the way to ours. We're experiencing it in larger numbers and in larger ways than in most generations than most generations have, but we are not alone in that reality of being concerned for that. Now, it's also helpful to remember, and church, I want you to get this. I want you to hear this. It's also helpful to remember that it's not a problem which can be go- that can be governed away or legislated away or strategized away. It can only be undone one conversation and one relationship at a time. The problem of people walking away from faith in Jesus will not be solved by anything other than one relationship at a time, one conversation at a time. As much as our culture, here's what that means, as much as our culture tells us that there is no room in the public sector for faith and that it is meant to be completely private, as often as we're told that and as often as honestly we have succumbed to that way of thinking, We will have to bring a robust and thoughtful version of Christianity into the marketplace of ideas in our conversations if we are going to be a people who live for the glory of God and for the good of his world, which he created. And so 2 Corinthians 11 is going to address that with us. And we're going to talk about two questions today, two questions that I think are very prevalent for us. The first is this, what causes people to walk away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? What causes that? What are the reasons for that? And I want to do two parts to that question, attempting to answer that. One, I just want to walk you through 2 Corinthians 11 and show you some things that Paul is pointing out that probably have always been historically true for followers of Jesus and reasons why people have been drawn away from him. And then I want to see if we can't land squarely in our cultural day and age. I want to see if I can't identify some things that are not from this text specifically that are tempting and drawing people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. The second question, so that's question number one with two parts to its response. The second question I want to see if we can't answer, and we're going to do it very succinctly today, is what can be done about it? If this is the case, these statistics, if they hold true, what can actually be done about that reality that people are walking away from faith in Jesus? And of course, friends, we have in mind our our rising generation in particular, right? We have in mind our young adult population and our students who are making decisions now about what they believe and what they will believe going forward in the future. Now, people of all ages walk away from Jesus But it it tends to be that when you've walked with him for 40, 50 years, you're not as prone to walk away as if you're still fresh in that relationship and trying to discern what it means for your life. So I want to look at those two things. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'm just going to break it down into sections for us uh, so that we're not going to hit all 33 verses at the same exact time. Here's what it says in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 11. It says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel a divine jealousy for you, for I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, Or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. 
I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. If I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Okay, pause there. So last week when we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, what we saw and what Eddie did a great job unpacking for us is that Paul's ministry had come under attack from a group of people who had come into the church at Corinth and they were saying Paul wasn't to be trusted, he wasn't to be believed. They were attacking his character, his integrity. And so Paul uh, and what Eddie did a great job for us is to say, what happens, what should you do? How should you respond when that's the case? When people attack your character, when they attack what you're trying to do for the Lord, uh, how do you respond? And he did a great job of giving us some, some hooks to hang our hats on with that. So this week we're going further into this journey with the super apostles. Now you caught that term in verse 5, I hope. And recognize that when Paul calls calls these uh, enemies of his, these people that are trying to dissuade the Corinthians from trusting him, uh, when he does that, when he calls them super apostles, he's doing that tongue-in-cheek, right? He's being sarcastic. He's not saying these are really super apostles. He's saying they are super apostles in the sense of being sarcastic about who they are. He's saying, I'm not inferior to these, quote unquote, super apostles. So you can imagine the air quotes around him as he's, as he's talking, right? So he says that about them. Now, notice what happens as he builds this case in these first six verses, or at least tells us what the problem is that's taking place. In verse 2, he presents the Corinthians' relationship with Christ to them as a marriage relationship. I don't know if you caught that, but look again at verse 2. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. In other words, he's saying, I am, I am jealous. I am dead set on seeing you be committed to Jesus and not walk away from him. I'm jealous for your affection to be given to him. For I betrothed you to one husband. So what's Paul doing? He's picturing himself, painting a metaphor of himself as like a dad giving away his daughter to a groom. And he's saying, I am so, now if you're a dad and you have a daughter, that's a pretty precious moment, isn't it? I do a lot of weddings and I stand in one of the funniest moments of every wedding is I walk the dads through this in rehearsal. I promise you, we rehearse this and we get to the day of and it it happens this way almost every single time. Dad walks daughter down the aisle. Groom stands next to daughter. I stand up here. I say a few remarks and then I say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he typically will say, her mother and I do. At that point, I've given him the instructions to take her hand put it in his hand, give her a hug, kiss, whatever you want to do, and then you have to go sit down. <laughs> and every, and they say, yes, 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 I will do it. And every single time, dad goes, her mother and I do, gets weepy-eyed, hugs daughter, puts hand there, and then stands there frozen like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> like, what am I doing? This is, what am I doing? And I have to, I, I have to go, you, you have to go now, right? And he does. He makes it down there. Usually, you know, he gets down and gets seated. That's the image Paul is painting. He's saying like, look, I was like a dad to you, Corinthians. I came in and I, I betrothed you to one husband, no one else. I didn't betroth you to a bunch of different husbands. I didn't betroth you to some other Jesus. I betrothed you to the one and only son of God. And I'm jealous for you to be faithful in your commitment to him, in your marriage to him. That's what he's saying in verse 2. So he's raising the stakes for their understanding of their relationship with him. When you understand that to come to Jesus is to be his bride and he is your groom and he will always fulfill his covenant faithfulness to you, he will never be unfaithful to you the way a groom is meant to be faithful to his bride for all his life. 
Your only right response to that is to be faithful in return. When you understand that, it kind of raises the stakes a little bit when you think about your relationship with him, doesn't it? You think about those sin patterns in your life and you think, oh, this is akin to a bride cheating on her groom. I must be faithful as he has been faithful to me. That's what he's saying in verse two. Then he goes on to verse three and he gives us the crux of the entire chapter, the thing that he's trying to point out and, and, and really drive our attention to. And he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Now he's just going back to the garden there and the, the first rebellion against God of Eve and Adam, their choice to rebel against God by taking the fruit that he said not to take and that the serpent was the one Satan brought into that form of the serpent declaring things that weren't true to Eve and deceiving her and then leading her astray. He's essentially saying, I'm I'm afraid that as that happened, by cunning, your thoughts will be led astray, here's the key phrase, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what he's getting at. I want you to have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now he goes on to verse four and he says, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus. Okay, pause there. Because you might have in mind, especially if it's your first time reading through the Bible, you might be thinking, what's he talking about? Another Jesus. Like, were these super apostles coming in and saying like, oh, no, no, you're worshiping this Jesus who Paul proclaims is crucified and resurrected, but there's another one who also claims to be Messiah. His name's Jesus too. That's just a whoops-a-daisy weird thing happening. But you should actually be following him. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that there are two Jesuses, two men named Jesus, both of whom are claiming that they should be followed. He's essentially saying the Jesus these super apostles are proclaiming to you is so, it's, it's, it's the Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you, but they're proclaiming things about him that are so far from true and they're leading you so far astray as to what it really means to worship and follow him that I don't even recognize him, so much so that I'm gonna call it another Jesus. And then he goes on to say, and if you receive another spirit, in other words, not the Holy Spirit, that belongs to Jesus, but some other spirit of the world that would come in and empower you, some other idea, some other ideology. He says, if you receive or accept another gospel, you put up with it readily enough. That's his response to the Corinthians. In other words, they're liking what they're hearing from the super apostles. And there's some reasons why they're liking what they're hearing. Now, Paul doesn't go into like extensive detail about what the super apostles are teaching. But what he does do is give us some keys that we can draw from to understand what it was that they were doing that was causing the Corinthians to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And those things, I would argue, are things that are always historically true uh, within the church when people are led astray from Jesus. So we want to look at those three things, okay? So, Let's look now at this question. What has led the people of God away from Christ historically? And we're going to answer this by looking at different sections of this text. The first one is this. The first thing that leads people of God away from Christ historically is an appeal to their sense of self-importance. An appeal to our sense of self-importance. Now, let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 7 through 11. Paul continues and he says, Or did I commit a sin... In humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge. I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Okay, so let's stop there. 
And here's what's going on. As you read that, you might think, what, what is happening there? Here's what's happening. Is Paul has chosen not to receive any financial support from the church at Corinth. And he's done that for a reason. Because he doesn't want anyone to be able to say, oh, Paul is just preaching the gospel in order to get money back. In order for selfish gain so that he can sort of make a living for himself. And Paul is going, no, 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 no. I didn't take any support from you, Corinthians, because I didn't want anyone to be able to say that. I wanted them to know that the gospel I proclaimed was not about me or gain for me. This was about life for you. It's a selfless approach, right? Would y'all agree? And so he's saying, I, I, here's what I did. I didn't take support from you. Now, he did take support from another church. And if you remember, back in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, he identified the Macedonian church as this incredibly poor church that was also incredibly generous when it came to the offering that Paul was taking up for the church at Jerusalem. And he says not only were they incredibly generous when it came to taking up this offering for the church in Jerusalem, they are incredibly generous in that they're supporting me right now to do the work I'm doing among you. So Paul's not opposed to receiving support from a church. He's doing it and he's claiming that he's doing it right now. But there was a reason why he didn't take support from the Corinthians. And I think that reason is this. Now you and I might, as we look at this, think, who would have any objection to someone coming in and saying, no, no, I don't want your money? That seems like something we would like. Is oh, okay, this person is humble, they're honest, they're, they're not in it for themselves. That's good. And that's what Paul is saying is his reason for not doing it. But one of the things we need to understand about the ancient world is that there were, in Paul's world, in his day and age, philosophers and teachers who traveled all over the Mediterranean, all over the world, the known world at that point, Proclaiming different philosophies, different teachings. They were itinerant speakers. The way they made their living was from those who supported them. So they would go and they would teach in the public sphere, in the marketplace. And people would go, oh, they are so philosophically wise. If you remember the book of Acts, this is what's going on. When Paul is in Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he goes to proclaim the gospel. And he, where he goes, he goes to Mars Hill where he recognizes that's all, he says, all they do all day long is sit and listen to different philosophies being proposed. So this is a normal thing. Now these philosophers, the best of the best, got support from people who they were talking to. In other words, people would listen to them and go, wow, that guy is sharp. He is good. I want to put my money behind him so he can go and tell that to other people. And so one of the reasons that people would do that is because it was considered a sign of honor and prestige to be able to support the most well-known and the brightest and the best of these philosophers and teachers. And so when Paul says, Corinthians, I'm not going to take your money, what he's essentially doing is, in their mind, saying you're not worth being supported by like these other philosophers, like these other teachers. They're taking our support. The super apostles show up on the scene and are more than willing to receive money from the Corinthians saying, oh, we have a boasted mission. We are the brightest and the best and we're proclaiming to you things that you need to know and receiving money in response for those. <coughs> Pardon me. So when Paul does that, now one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, right, is why would Paul receive church support from one church but not another? And the reason I think must be that Paul is recognizing that for the Macedonians, it was no problem for them to support him in the work that he was doing. But if he had received support from the Corinthians, it would have led them astray somehow. It would have been not beneficial, but detrimental to them. 
And the reason that's the case is because of this. The reason that people wanted to support itinerant philosophers and teachers was not because they thought their, their message was so great, although that was a part of it, is that they wanted to be associated and affiliated with them. They wanted to feel important. And when they were a supporter of the best and the brightest, they could say, oh, yeah, 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 that's my guy. I support him. I am behind him. And I then sort of get a fame or recognition by being affiliated with him. Maybe the way to think of it is this. Think about professional athletes and the groups that surround them, right? Why do those groups of people want to be around professional athletes and hang out with them so much? Fame by association, right? This idea of I'm connected to someone who's important, who's powerful, who is culturally winsome and everybody wants their time and attention and I'm part of their group, right? But now just picture it in reverse. Rather than those people surrounding those athletes kind of being supported by the money the athletes make, imagine if those people were supporting the athlete with their finances. That's what's going on with the Corinthians. So the super apostles, by coming in and receiving their support and proclaiming themselves as these important philosophers and important teachers and using the name of Jesus for selfish gain, they are appealing to the Corinthian sense of self-importance. Now, for those of us who are familiar with Paul and who are familiar with the gospel, one of the things we know is that the way of Jesus and the way of self-exaltation even self-exaltation by association are not compatible. That we walk away from him and people tend to walk away from Jesus when our desire to have much made of us is bigger than our desire to have much made of Jesus. And if we're honest, one of the things we recognize, the reason Paul is afraid that the Corinthians are going to walk away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus is because he sees in them a desire to exalt themselves more than a desire to exalt the name of Jesus. And that's what's behind this whole financial dealing. And so what comes down to us then is that the church in every age has experienced people who walk away from Jesus because when it comes down to brass tacks, we are more interested in making much of ourselves, in feeling good about ourselves, in making sure we sort of feel therapized, that we are okay, that we're good enough, that somebody loves us, that we're like in and of ourselves good enough. And the gospel comes in and it offends that message. The true gospel comes in and says, you're not good enough, you're not enough. You need someone to rescue you and redeem you. Now in Christ, you will never be unloved and you will in him be enough in the eyes of God because of what he has done, not because of anything that you have done. And so the gospel often gets left behind when our desire for self-importance trumps our desire to see God made important. You guys follow me? You with me? That's what's going on here first. That's his first concern. Now, let's go to the next one. The next reason I think people are led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus is the appeal of strong personalities. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Forgive me. Is people with an agenda and a strategy. Look at verses 12 through 15. The gloves are going to come off now for Paul. He says, and what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants, wait a minute, what did he just call them? Servants of Satan, right? It is no surprise if his servants 
Now I've got to find my place again. Also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. And here's what Paul is saying. Like I said, Paul is taking the gloves off here. He's saying, in essence, church, that this is not a well-meaning group of people who came in proclaiming the name of Jesus with the best of intentions and, with, and they just happen to be a little askew in their theology and they just need some correcting. They just need someone to kind of coach them up a little bit and go, oh, no, 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 you're, I, I know you're saying this, but it's really, you're a little off, super apostles. You need to be brought to a... Uh, a fuller knowledge, a better, more correct understanding of what Jesus has done and who he is, far from it. What Paul is saying is that these men have an agenda and a strategy. They are proclaiming the name of Jesus, not for the sake of Jesus, but for their own selfish gain. So much so that he calls them servants of the devil. And he says, look, this is what the devil does. The devil disguises himself as an angel of light. Now here it's probably helpful it's probably helpful for us to be reminded of the difference between the mission of God and the mission of the devil. You see, the mission of God is that people would be redeemed to him. And there's one thing that all people must believe in order to be redeemed, right? And so God, in his mission, must drive people towards one truth, towards the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Satan doesn't have the same thing. Satan does not need to get you to believe any one specific thing. He just needs to keep you from believing the one specific thing that God wants you to believe. See, that's why Satan is perfectly fine with you being a moral person. Satan is not all that interested in getting everybody to sort of raise hell, so to speak. Right? To be these people who run around, you know, sort of murdering and pillaging. Like, Satan is not all that interested. He's happy to disguise himself as an angel of light and cause you to think, I am a morally good person who does right things more often than I do wrong things. And that's fine with him because his interest is not getting you to believe one certain thing about him. It's to keep you from believing what is true about God in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says he disguised himself as an angel of light. It's why false representatives can come in and use the name of Jesus but teach false things about him, right? Jesus plus something else will get you redeemed, make you right. Or, you know, Jesus was not fully God, but he was a really good teacher. He was a prophet even. That should be enough, right, if we view his teaching as being good teachings. And he's saying, no, you must believe that Jesus was crucified and resurrected as the Son of God for your sins. And unless you place all your faith in him, you cannot be reconciled to God. It's important that we understand that. Now, here's why I point this out from verse 12 and 15. Because, friends, I'm, I, here's what you, I, I can say about myself. I am uh, not an overly skeptical person. I, I tend to assume people have good motives. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I think it's an okay thing. I think it honors God that I would assume that uh, a lot. But I have been uh, at different points in my life sort of coached up by the Lord that I should not always assume everyone has pure motives. That there are people, particularly in our cultural day and age, that are strategically, that have a strategic agenda to eliminate the name of Jesus from the public sector and the public sphere. Now, I don't think that means we come out sort of with gloves up and punching in terms of a response to that, but I think we have to move out of sort of the naivete, which I have been guilty of, of believing that sort of, oh no, they're well-meaning, but they, they're just, you know, they're thinking a little differently than we are. There are people who, with great intentionality, 
want to see the name of Jesus removed from the public sphere and from the lives of people, that want to lead people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, just like these super apostles did. And if we're not aware of that reality, if we're not aware that there are people that very, in a very real way intend to lead us astray, we won't, we won't take up the, the fight the way that we need to in the best sense of that word. Third thing here is this, that leads us astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. The appeal of strong personalities and the appearance of expertise. Look at verse 16 through 21. It says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. So what Paul's doing there is he's setting up the rest of the chapter where he's going to essentially say, look, Followers of Jesus do not boast about their mission. They don't boast about what they do. Uh, But these guys are kind of talking like fools. So let me just for a moment engage. And he's going to say again and again, I'm talking like a fool when I talk this way. But just hear this. So he's setting that up. And then in verse 17 he says, What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. Again, he's saying that sarcastically. And then the most interesting phrase in this little section. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Now here's what's interesting. Apparently these super apostles have come in and they are such a tour de force of personality and of apparent wisdom that the Corinthians are wowed by them. Have you met people with strong personalities like this who just wow you when you meet them? They seem to have an answer for everything. And they seem to say something that seems true enough and it seems clever and it seems pretty clear. And you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so impressed by their knowledge and how much they know and This has happened again and again and again in the history of the church as we are wooed astray from Jesus by people with false motives but with strong personalities, right? It's why as a church we set up, not to get too far into this, but we set up our governance so that we have a plural elder board. We have elders that govern the church, not one individual, no one individual, no one strong personality can, can lead a church in a biblical sense. You need a group of elders that are appointed by a congregation and serve at their pleasure. And so you guard against strong personalities with the appearance of expertise coming in and leading astray. Now, as I said, the people of God have often been led astray by strong personalities with words that have just enough truth in them to be really confusing. Now, I think in another time, this would have been teachers who were very philosophically bent, who could sort of quote the the greatest philosophers of the age and appeared to have a lot of sort of understanding when it came to worldviews and a lot of knowledge when it came to those things. But do you know what I think it is now? Now, this is not gospel. This is my own opinion, okay? But do you know what I think the strong personalities are that lead us astray now from a true, sincere, pure devotion to Jesus is? I think it's funny teachers, I think we live in a day and age where we value entertainment so much that people that get a voice are people who can make you laugh and people who are funny. And there are a lot of people that in the name of Jesus are leading people astray and people follow them because they're clever and witty and funny. And my friend Sam said after the first service, thank God we don't have a funny pastor. (laughs) But then I was just funny, so what do I do with that now? I don't even have an idea. 
I do. I think funny teachers. I think we value being entertained. I think people with strong personalities that can make us laugh. Maybe it's because make, it makes them seem relatable. They have just enough words to seem credible. Just enough words to seem credible. And making us laugh causes us to stop paying attention to whether that what they're saying is actually true or not. And then when they go off the reservation, when they go off the reservation, we go right with them. Friends, test your teachers. Test your teachers. Are they making the word of God plain? Is their teaching saturated in the scriptures? One of the things you will always find with false teachers, they will start in the Bible, but they will leave the Bible behind in time. Test them over time. Do they continue to root you in the word of God or do they launch from the word of God and then begin to say a bunch of fancy things? And a bunch of things that just seem like really homespun, great stories that cause you to feel like, oh yeah, I get it. That's some homespun, Mark Twain type wisdom. Do they root you in the scriptures? Do they reduce God? This is a big one. Do they reduce God to one aspect of his personality? Or do they help you live in the tension of a God who is both loving and just? Of a God who is both merciful and wrathful towards sin, of a God who is both joyfully gentle and frighteningly powerful. Test your teachers. If these are the things that have historically led people away from God that Paul is talking about here, I want to come back to the last section of the text at the end of our time to talk about what do we do about that. But I want to take just a moment, and I'm going to be brief here. Each one of these four things that I want to share with you could be a sermon unto itself. Okay, But I want to see if we can't land with some practical thoughts about, okay, what are things that are leading us astray today? What are worldviews? What are philosophies that are present with us that we maybe have not even recognized, but that are we're swimming in the waters of these, and we've got to begin to identify them? Okay, I'm not going to give a strong, like, here's how you come against this philosophy with each one of these, because I don't have time today. But hopefully just by identifying them and causing us to see, oh my goodness, yes, that is present among us, we, be, we can begin to know how to deal with it. Our first step is having our eyes open to it. Now, none of these should be a huge surprise. I've addressed all of them at some point or another in different sermons. But let's talk about these four. The last three, by the way, I want to credit Tim Keller, his book Preaching by Tim Keller, which I, you may not be interested in a book on preaching, but there's at least a chapter in there where he addresses these, the last three things I'm going to talk about, and it's helpful. So you can go there for a further discourse on it. The first thing, though, I think is to look in-house and is to say this. I think the first thing that is leading our young, our young people in particular astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ is the shallowness of the church. The shallowness of the church. Now, I say that as someone who loves the church. You probably don't have any idea how much I love the church. I love the bride of Christ. Oh, I love her so much. Now, I don't mean just this local church. I mean the people of God everywhere on the earth as they gather in local churches. But I, look, the church is God's plan A for redeeming the world, and there's no plan B. The church is Christ's bride, and we don't get the option of liking her. We have to love her. It's real easy to throw assaults at the church and say she's not what she should be, and that's true enough. But we don't get the option of saying, oh, I kind of want to, I kind of want Jesus without the church. Well, guess what? Jesus is married to the church. So you don't get a choice. 
you got to get into a local church and you got to live life inside that place with all its messiness, with all its difficulty. You've got to do it. You don't have a choice. Neither do I. So, I love the church, but here's what I found myself thinking about all week. This is what was heavy on my heart all week long because we're talking about people walking away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. That's what I'm reading about and thinking about and praying about in 2 Corinthians 11. And I'm thinking about all the students that I have invested in over the years and so many of them whom I love dearly who presently are not walking with Jesus. They have done exactly what this text is talking about. And it's just rending my heart because I feel a sincere divine jealousy for them to worship Jesus. And I could go name by name. I'm not going to do that, but I could go name by name of people that my heart breaks over as I think of them. And I just found myself thinking, what was it? What was it in their lives that caused them to say, I'm going to put Jesus away because, because this over here, whatever is better. One of the things I think that has caused them to put Jesus away is the shallowness of the church. I think we are coming out of an era in the church where the church has cared more about numbers growth, more people showing up, than about the kinds of people that we are producing, the kinds of disciples that we are making. Rather than caring about creating people of deep truth and deep lives and deep love who are saturated by the way of Jesus and everything, every aspect of their life is informed by who Jesus is, the way they spend their money and the way they spend their time and the way they think about what they watch and don't watch and the way they do their job and the, the way that they function with integrity and, and refuse to tell lies at work to get ahead and, and, and the way that they love people who don't look like them, that the way of Jesus would influence and infiltrate every area of our lives. I think we are guilty historically as a church. I don't mean just us locally. I mean, I mean like the church at large is guilty of caring more about getting more people in the door and less about how we develop those people who come through the door. And friends, it matters who comes through the door. You know that, right? It matters who comes through these doors. It matters that your friends who are, who are hurting and, according to the Bible, lost and skeptical, it matters that they would find a home here. It does matter. But what matters even more than that is what is done in our lives when we come together whether we learn to follow the ways of Jesus together, whether we become less prejudiced, whether we become more loving, whether we lay down our idols, the things that we look to for value and meaning, our addictions are undone because Jesus is a chain breaker. It matters immensely. So we want that as a church. We want to be that. But here's the thing. I'm looking at a young generation of pastors and leaders coming up underneath me, younger than me, and I'm so thankful because what I see is a group of people asking the question, how do we engage a post-Christian culture with the gospel and recognizing that it's going to have to be through a Christianity that influences every aspect of life, a deep Christianity, not a shallow one, not just Jesus slapped on top of a life that looks moral, but Jesus buried down deep in influencing every aspect of life. Because you see, my kids who have walked away have grown up, look, they've grown up in a church that, and they've read in their Bibles about how the last is first. And they've read about in Ephesians chapter 2 how Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between people of different races. They've heard these things. They've heard about how Jesus is able to rescue and redeem people from their darkest addictions 
And then they look at a church and they say, and they, they, they hear love your enemies and they see a church that can throw a punch with the best of them. And they see a church that loves worldly power just as much as anybody else. And they see a church that is more segregated than any other sector of our society. Any other se- This is the most segregated hour in our country right now as we meet. And they've looked at other places that they can go and they said, oh, they seem, they're more diverse. They seem more accepting and embracing. Now, I would argue that the church has the power and ability to be something that no one else has the power and ability to be. I believe that with all my heart. But they have left because the church has been shallow. We can't stand for it anymore. We can't be there anymore. Let me give you three other things. The advance of a materialist worldview is leading our kids astray. Not just our kids, us. The advance of a materialist worldview. Here's what I mean by that. When I say materialist worldview, I've addressed this before. I don't mean materialism. I don't mean just love for stuff, although that can lead us astray too. What I mean by a materialist worldview is the view that says, is purported as science, but it's not. Purported as science that says there is nothing more in the world than the physical than the chemistry of your body and the computer that is your central nervous system. In fact, Andrew Claven, who is the author of the book, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. Author of that book, Andrew Claven says, when we talk about the materialist worldview, they are offering that human beings are nothing more than a chemistry set and a computer. That's how he phrases it. That all our actions are governed by our biology, which, by the way, is a great excuse for all of our failings and rebellion against God's standard. Clavin says that our culture is under the spell of a materialist worldview. Never mind the fact that a materialist worldview is illogical and cannot prove what it says is true. You recognize that a materialist worldview that says there is no soul cannot prove that there is no such thing as a soul, right? How do you, if you only believe in the material, test for the immaterial? You cannot. And here's the problem. This may be, aside from the illogicalness of it, aside from the the sort of short-sighted and narrowness of it, The biggest problem with the materialist worldview is that we have people in the name of science declaring that materialism has been proven and it cannot prove and science can never prove the existence or non-existence of a soul, of an immaterial. Because science by definition deals with the material, not the immaterial. So it is a philosophical worldview that is being represented as scientific fact. And the problem with that is that the aim of that is to create a false dichotomy between science done well and faith, as if those two things cannot go hand in hand, as if they're contradictory to one another. But science done well and honestly in the name of God is of great value. And so our kids look and they go, oh, materialist worldview has been proven. It's been proven. And I guess that the soul, the spirit, none of that must, must actually be true. So all the stuff I've read in the Bible is more hocus pocus. And they believe that there's this false dichotomy between faith and science. And they walk away. All because they've been deceived by a materialist worldview that is a philosophy. And a bad one at that. Not science. The next thing that I see leading our students astray from my time with them is what I call chronological snobbery. Now, that's kind of funky language, all right? But let me explain what I mean by that, all right? There was in the ancient world, in the ancient world that Paul actually lived in, 
There was a belief that history was cyclical, that it went in, in cycles, in circles, right? So eventually history always repeated itself. And humanity was not progressing anywhere. It was just essentially living the same thing over and over again. That was the view in the ancient Near East. But what happened is Christianity came in, and the teaching of Christianity was, oh, no, no, history is not cyclical. History is progressing. There's a God who created everything. He's telling a story. He sent a redeemer, and he's working everything towards an end that will ultimately be dictated by him. So history is a progression. Now, the interesting thing is secularists in the West have taken the idea that is rooted in Christian belief of a historical progression, and they've used it and twisted it to mean to to exercise what we call chronological snobbery, that everything, because history is progressing, that is new is better than what is old because we're always progressing. Now, how many of you know that every time we invent something new, it doesn't mean that's progress? We live in a culture that does not ask whether we should do it. They only ask if we can do it. And the assumption is if we can, it must represent progress. Aha. But that's a false twisting it's a false twisting of the idea that history is progressing in a specific direction. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's going to get pretty bad at the end, right before it gets really good. And so the idea of historical progress, twisted by a secularist worldview, tells us that everything that is old is bad, everything that is new is better or good. The problem with that is this, and here's why that causes people to walk away from faith, because we have a God who does not change, a gospel that does not change, and moral implications of that gospel that do not change. And when we want something else or some new teaching comes in, this idea of historical progression causes us to say, well, that new thing must be better than this old thing. You guys with me? So that, that line of thought, that philosophy is leading us astray. Fourth thing, and then I'll make a last point and, and wrap up with a story. What I call the myth of the autonomous individual and moral self-authorization. Okay, let me explain that one. That's a bunch of fancy language. The myth of the autonomous individual and moral self-authorization. Again, in the ancient world, there was this belief that the tribe was more important than the individual. In fact, every culture you went to, they would have always said, any individual's choices should always be made and must always be made for the good of the tribe, the good of the whole, the collective. That's pretty noble. It's not bad. But there was a complete devaluing of the individual. Now, Christianity comes in in the, in the first century, right? And it teaches not only is the individual not necessarily uh, a negative thing, but every individual bears the image of God. God desires to redeem them and loves them. And that person can have a personal one-to-one -one relationship with God. So it's an exaltation or a raising up of the individual. Not a demotion of the tribe, but a raising of the individual as absolutely important in the eyes of God, as a very specific creator and now redeemer. And so when the Christian worldview comes in, it teaches that, the importance of the individual and of having a one-to-one -one personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The secular West takes that idea and twists it by exalting the individual so far that we essentially eliminate God from the picture by saying that every person is autonomous, that they are, a, they are a being unto themselves that is completely independent of any other being. It's an overstatement of the individualization that Christianity brought into the world and the understanding of the importance of the individual. And here's what happens when every person becomes autonomous, meaning independent of every other person, not needing anyone else or any God to rule over them, then every person becomes morally self-authorizing 
What we mean by that is that they determine what is right and wrong for themselves. That's the simple way to say it. You are the author, the authority, on what is right for you and what is wrong for you. And the only time you ever have to blink when it comes to what is right or wrong for you is if your pursuit of what you believe to be right for you infringes upon someone else's pursuit of what is right for them. That's the only time that you have to actually ask the hard question of whether you've done something right or wrong because you authorize your own morality. You guys follow me? Now here's the problem with that. In that world, in that realm, in that line of thinking, look, it's appealing in the short run. Who doesn't like being told that whatever you desire is right? Whatever you wanna do is okay because you can authorize it. You can be the one to determine that it's okay. Who wouldn't like that? My friends, it's appealing in the short run. It is disastrous. It will eat you alive in the long run. And you know that, don't you? You ever followed one of your desires down a road that you recognize about five miles down that road? That was a bad spot. You thought, how do I get back? We've all done that. We've all gone down that road of following our own idea of what is right and recognizing, sometimes feeling too late, that we've gone down a road we should not have gone down. Here's the challenge of the gospel is when you bring the gospel to somebody, us included, you're saying to them, oh, guess what? You don't get to dictate right and wrong anymore. You have to submit yourself to another being, to God, who declares to you what is right and wrong. And your desires, some of them will be wrong, and he will tell you that. And you'll have to have those reshaped by him over time. And some of them will be right, and he'll, he'll want you to promote those. He'll help breathe life into those desires. But you're not in charge anymore. In the short run, that sounds awful. I don't want somebody telling me what to do and being in charge of me. But in the long run, it is life-giving. In the long run, it's the only course to life. So those are four things. Now, the thing about that, I guess I should say, is that we, we serve a Jesus who's, who doesn't change and whose moral demands upon us do not change. And so when we're faced with this philosophy of moral self-authorizing, which sounds great up front, we end up walking away from Jesus sometimes because we think to ourselves, this sounds better. This sounds better to me than to have somebody else tell me what's right and wrong. Now, what can be done about it? Let me give you one answer. We could go through each one of those and we could say, okay, well, here's, what, here's how we combat that. Here's how we come against that. Here's where, it's, here's where the underpinnings of that philosophy aren't, aren't true. Here's where they fall apart. Here's where the argument falls apart. We could do that. But I wanna give you one thing today. And it's the thing that Paul gives us at the end of this chapter. It's such a simple one. It's this. As a church, as followers of Jesus, we have to actively embrace lowliness. We have to actively embrace lowliness, sacrifice. Here's what he says in verse 21b and following. Actually, I'll just start reading in verse 23. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? You see what he's done? He said, okay, I, you guys are boasting. I, let me boast too. 
It's foolish to do so, but let me do so too. And then what does he boast in? He turns it on its head because the super apostles sure as heck do not boast in their suffering. They do not boast in the cost that they have paid for the sake of Jesus. They boast in their eloquence, in their intelligence, in their power. And Paul comes in and says, okay, I'm going to boast too. I've been stoned. I've been whipped. I've been beaten. Almost beyond recognition. I've been adrift at sea a night and a day. I am in danger everywhere I go because of the name of Jesus. And I'm going to boast in that. What's he doing? Saying, if you want to come against false teachers who try and lead people away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus, you lower yourself. You lower yourself. You become a servant to all. Church, if we are going to stem the tide of the culture that is hovering over us, what we must do is become a people who at every turn are a people of sacrifice. That we lay down our desires, we lay down our wants so that others can find satisfaction in Jesus. We must be a people of deep sacrifice. Listen to this story from Ed Stetzer's blog, which is called The Exchange. It's on Christianity Today's website. Read this there this week. It says, perhaps you are familiar with the story of Maximilian Kolbe, a Jew who converted to Christianity and ministered to those in the Nazi camps at Auschwitz. In late July 1941, after several men escaped, the deputy camp commander chose 10 prisoners to be killed in order to discourage prisoners from trying to flee. When the last man, Francis Gaonicek, was chosen, he cried out, my wife, my children. Colby stepped forward and offered to be killed in his place. Just weeks earlier, Colby penned these words to his mother, Dear Mama, at the end of the month of May, I was transferred to the camp of Auschwitz. Everything is well in my regard. Be tranquil about me and about my health, because the good God is everywhere and provides for everything with love. He was starving at the time. Colby was taken away, starved to near death, and was finally killed by lethal injection. He was 47 years old. Colby was often called the Christ of Auschwitz by those who knew him. Gajonicek later recalled this about having Colby take his place to die. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. It was the first and the last time that such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. For a long time, I felt remorse when I thought of Maximilian. By allowing myself to be saved, I had signed his death warrant. But now, on reflection... I understood that a man like him could not have done otherwise. Wouldn't it be good if people said of us, the followers of Jesus cannot do otherwise but to lay down their lives for the sake of others. Oh, to be known as a church for that. 
to be known as a people who sacrifice at every turn because Jesus is dear and precious and we have a great treasure in him that can never be taken from us. And we would sacrifice our promotions and our power and we would sacrifice our reputations. We would sacrifice our comfort at every turn so that people would see, one, that Jesus is good and is enough and see that they need him too. My friends, we have a generation that's rising in our church, and I want to encourage you and call you to pray about something. Our children's ministry continues to grow. Every week, more kids, more kids, more kids. So I could tell you to stop having kids. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Or I could ask you to do this. Some of you, God is calling, and I want you to listen. All right, Don't listen to your pastor. Listen to the call of God in his spirit. Some of you, God is calling to lay down your Sunday mornings, to lay down your time, to invest your lives one-to-one in the lives of our kids. And we need you to. We need you to. Not just for sheer numbers. Our numbers are growing and that it creates a challenge. It's a good challenge to have, but we need more of you to prayerfully consider giving your lives away so that our kids would hear the gospel and be steeped in it both within our children's ministry and within our youth ministry, our middle and high school students. Because friends, I, look, I want you to know this. One of the most important things for every single one of our kids, every single one of our students, is that they have adults in their lives that love Jesus and talk with them about him that are not their parents, in addition to their parents. Because there's gonna come a day where every kid has a hard time listening to their parents. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> and guess what? They're going to need some other adults around them that they respect and love and know love them. And you as their Sunday school teacher, you as the leader of their life group, you might be that person. You might be the person that keeps them from walking away from Jesus and his bride because they know you're sincere and have a pure devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be good to be the reason someone didn't walk away? So my friends, I'll say this. The last thing too, if I could encourage you, particularly young parents like me, if you're a young parent like me, I know that when we talk about getting in life groups, one of the objections is, man, we got, it's crazy. Life is crazy. We got kids, we're changing diapers, we're running to soccer. It's nuts. I know it's nuts. You need to prioritize above all those other things being in a life group because, because your kids need to be raised in a context with other adults around them that love Jesus it's one of the deep commitments for Amanda and I is that as our kids will always know not just we love Jesus, but they will have other adults who will be able to speak into their lives with authority so that when they stop listening to me, they might listen to one of them. When dad seems like a big dummy, maybe this guy that's been in their life group for the last 10 years and loved on them for those 10 years, they'll go, okay, dad's a dummy, but that guy's not. So friends, you know, join me in the journey. Join me in the journey. It's too important. Okay, I've gone over. We're not going to sing our last song. We're going to pray, and I'm going to receive the, I mean, you're gonna, I'm going to give you the benediction. So bow with me. Let's pray. Father, you are uh, always reminding me of how good you are through how good your people in this church are. Not just morally good. They're just gracious, and they're kind. They hunger for you. They thirst for you. And I pray that you give more. Give more hunger, more thirst, more desire for you to each and every one of us. Oh, we want it. We want to know more of you. We want to see you as you are. 
We want to be further submitted to you and to your ways because you are life, Jesus. And nothing else is. You are what no one else is. So give us greater affection, greater commitment, greater faithfulness. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us, give us grace, have mercy upon us. May we be the first to admit it, to humble ourselves, confess our sin, ask for forgiveness, not just of you, but of those whom we've sinned against. May even our failings be evidence of the truth of the gospel because we are a people who rest in the knowledge that we can be forgiven and are in Christ. And therefore we can humble ourselves, ask for that. Would you give us more of it, Lord Jesus? Make us a sacrificial people. As your people go out today, fill them with your power. Fill them with your joy. Fill them with your love. I ask it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.